Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Well, welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. It is my honor and privilege to have as our guest today, Dr. Richard Mao. Dr. Mao is the Senior Research Fellow at the Henry Institute for the Study of Religion and Politics at Calvin University. He's also previously served as the president of my alma mater, Fuller Theological Seminary, for 20 years. His recent book, which we'll be discussing in part today, is called How to Be a Patriotic Christian, Love of Country as Love of Neighbor. Dr. Mao, thank you so much for your time. Great to be with you. Yeah. So, Dr. Mao, tell us a little bit about the, the impetus for this particular book. You've, you've written on faith and theology and civility in the public square before. Why, how to be a patriotic Christian, and, and why does it matter now? Yeah, well, I think that uh, I, like so many other Christians, feel caught between two extremes right now. And extremes is a big part of our political environment today not about candidates in this case, but about patriotism, uh, which we associate with devotion to our flag, whether we can have patriotic symbols like flags in church or whether we can sing the national anthem in church or you know, all of those issues. And we have two extremes. On the one hand, there are people who do the whole God and country thing in a rather intimate way so that America is a uniquely blessed nation chosen by God for a very special mission in the world, not to align yourself with what is happening in America or what you understand America to stand for, Sure, uh, is really to be disobedient to God. On the other extreme are people who um, are very much against things associated with patriotism because they believe that a nation can become idolatry, kind of an idolatrous symbol of devotion and that people put the flag and they put America first above God first and Christ first and that kind of thing. I must say, I don't identify with either of those. I have problems with each. At the same time, I, I, I do think that we need to try to think these things through. So I, I really meant to be stepping back in this book and not sounding partisan because I don't feel very partisan when it comes to those kinds of questions. And just try to uh, calmly think things through. Look at some of the biblical passages that tell us how we are to understand our relationship to government, to political leaders, to uh, the symbols that are uh, associated with our national identity. And just try to make some sense out of all of this without uh, uh, because, because I want to say because I think I described those extremes, but there are a lot of people who are between those extremes. Some of us a little bit toward the, the right, some of us a little bit toward the left, but um, we do feel a need to be cautious and try to think things through. And it isn't always easy to do so given the rhetoric that's going on in our culture. 
Absolutely. Dr. Mao, you make a, a very fascinating point in your book where you talked about teaching at a seminary in China and how interacting with students there gave you a, a unique and fresh perspective on, on different views that different people within the same country have about what it means to faithfully embody the gospel in, in a very charged and volatile context. Could you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, right. You know, there are 21 uh, legally sanctioned, approved uh, seminaries in China. There are a lot of other ones that are associated with unregistered churches that may not be completely approved, but they manage to function a little bit, uh, even though the government may know where they are and who they are. Uh, but I was at the, uh, the largest of those seminaries. I spoke in chapel. I've been there a number of times, and I've spoken to a number of the seminaries there. But a group of students said they wanted to meet with me. And I asked them what they wanted me to talk about. And I said, what does it mean for us to be Christian citizens in China? And I jumped at that because I, I figured I was going to learn as much from them as they were going to be able to learn from me. And it turned out that they had disagreements. They were meeting regularly to talk about this, and they had disagreements about this. And one fairly strong point of view was uh, set forward by a, a young woman who says, look, the powers that be are ordained of God. And if we disobey powers, if we disobey the Chinese government, we're disobeying that which has been ordained of God. And we may not know why God wants us to be obey certain kinds of things, but uh, we have to do it. And another student who had been reading Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, sure. and he used that as an example. You know, here was this Lutheran pastor in Nazi Germany, and he understood Romans 13 and the render unto Caesar and all of that, but he did not believe that Christians were called simply to obey Hitler as Hitler was doing these, these horrible things. And so he said, you know, we do need to honor government, but only when government is not asking us to do things that compete with the claims of Christ in our life. And they went back and forth on this, but it was an interesting discussion because she did have a point that there is a respect for government. Uh, the term that gets used quite a bit in the New Testament is honor. We need to honor those who are in authority over us. I think First Peter too. Uh, but at the same time, his point was right that uh, whether you think that everything that the government is bad or whether it's, there can be just occasions for it, but that we somehow have to uh, find our way between an uncritical acceptance of what government is doing and as simply rejecting God's call for us to honor government that can be doing things that order our lives in ways that are pleasing to God. So what does that look like for you in practice? How, how have you found yourself able to honor people in, in government authority in our nation, even when you feel like their character or their policies might not be reflective of, of how you see the, both the kingdom and the gospel. So recognize that we're not gonna have perfect governments and, and uh, we're gonna get turned off when we see that governments are indeed human and, uh, and, and not always clear about their own calling. Uh, 
I do think we honor government by praying for government. We honor government by uh, speaking out on behalf of those who uh, the government is, is, is called by God to be serving. You know, it's very interesting, First Peter 2, it says that we're to honor those in authority over us. Hmm. But it also says, and it uses exactly the same verb. Uh, in Greek, it's the word temao. Uh, we are to honor all human beings. You know? hmm. So when I see my government uh, dishonoring, say, my Muslim neighbor, then in order for me to honor my government properly, I also have to work to have my government honor my Muslim neighbor properly. Yeah. And they go together. So I think it's, it's a matter of uh, caring about government, try to be informed about things, uh, certainly uh, criticizing government. But, but it also comes down to things like this. Uh, Celebrating national holidays, as we just did. Uh, it means uh, engaging in civic. And you know, when I go to Dodger Stadium, uh, I put my hand over my heart during this national anthem, just like everyone else around me does. And there's a sense of showing respect for government, because one of the callings of government is just to order human life. And, and sometimes we we work with the big issues without thinking about the, the small issues. If I can just go on a minute. Uh, I was once at a, at a meeting years ago when my son was just going to grade school, I think the second grade. And uh, this is a group of people representing Sojourners Magazine, you know, and they were quite critical of the United States. They said, you know, the United States is a fallen nation. Uh, it's a nation given to violence, to spreading bad things around the world. And it just so happened that the day before I had walked my son to school, I, I noticed, I, I mean, I, I had noticed this obviously in many ways, but I never thought about it before. There were stop signs that were on his path to school. When we got to the school, there was a crossing guard who were helping students cross the street. I, uh, I saw the principal whom I happened to know and we chatted together and he said, yeah, we just had a two day uh, safety inspection in our school with both the fire department and the police department and uh, various building kind of things and the like. And so we've got to uh, fix some things up. Well, you know, government helps kids cross streets safely. That doesn't mean that we look down on, or we, we look away from the other things, but um, crossing guards and safety inspection of schools uh, is an important part of my life as a parent and as a grandparent. And uh, those are good things. And so we have to be balanced in the ways in which we think about these things. I may not agree with what the government is doing and. Uh, Afghanistan or what it should be doing in Afghanistan, but I still appreciate uh, crossing guards. That's a great point. I, I think that one of the things I really appreciate about, you know, the letters to the seven churches in Revelation is it reminds us that two things can be true 
about a community or a church or a nation at the same time. You know, the angel who, who's speaking to the church has said, hey, I, I celebrate your faithfulness here, here, and here, yet I hold this against you. Uh, so these are things that are worthy of honor and celebration. These are the things that are worthy of a prophetic critique. It's yeah. possible to say both in, in the same sentence. Yeah, right. So talk a little bit about the flag, because uh, obviously it is it is gone from being something that that you felt pretty ordinary to something that's been a little bit more contentious in church circles this day. Just just the other week, I was driving with my with my 12 year old son through rural Indiana, and we drove by a house that had the flag hanging upside down. And my son, Josiah, is like, Dad, what's what's that all about? And I was like, well, if, if I have my flag understanding correct, it's somebody who's trying to communicate that things aren't as they should be. That, that they're they're under duress where where do christians fit the fit the flag into either their their reverence for nation their political allegiances or or even their worship if it comes to that yeah well you know i i i mean i've, I've got a background of uh, I, I i was shaped in my citizenship by the radical 60s you know yeah so i marched for civil rights I marched against the war. And there were generational conflicts that I ran into with my own family, with people in my church and, and the like. Uh, and uh, very often uh, the flag was held up as, you know, almost kind of like a, a religious symbol, uh, the, mm -hmm. you know, almost a reverence for the flag. And uh, I think I was sensible enough to know that there was a, the flag did stand for some good things in our in our lives. Although, and I, I I'm not a pacifist, so I appreciate those who who served under our flag and uh, giving their lives, uh, devoting themselves to defending our freedoms and the like. Uh, but uh, I, I I remember being at a anti-war rally where there were some counter protesters, people who did not like the anti-war movement, love it or leave it, you know, and all of this. And I, I saw a, a, a student on, in, of the anti-war protesters who went over and grabbed the guy's flag and trampled on it. And I thought, you know, whatever our differences are, that's just not, uh, at the rate, it's not nice, <laughs> right? Uh, but it, but this is also violating something. I don't like the idea of sacred, but something that is worthy of our uh, of our devotion. You know, I uh, I was brought up that you didn't drop the flag on the ground purposely. You know, sure. And there's something about that because it does have symbolic significance. And I think the people who are gung ho super patriots need to recognize that it does border on having a kind of uh, almost worship, worshipful thing, and we need to be careful about that. But the rest of us also need to uh, respect what it has stood for. And, uh, and, and I think ambivalence about these things is not all that bad. You know, I tell the story, but you know, the word patriotism comes from the word for father. And it's honoring the fatherland, or we could say the motherland, you know, respect both genders in, in this regard. And uh, uh, I, I tell the story of uh, 
being nine years old and buying my mother her first Mother's Day card. And I went and I read these cards and I had my allowance money, just enough to buy a nice card for my mother. And I, I, I the, the one that had the nicest picture on it, and I was a little nervous about it, but I got it because it said, you're the greatest mother in the world. You know? Well, you know, that, that's very likely not true. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, I, I, in fact, I thought of at the time, there must be some mother who, ran into a burning building and, and rescued her child, and that my mother hasn't done that. So that would be a little greater, but, but uh, it's what I call, uh, it's what I call uh, kind of rhetorical excess. And that's okay to tell your mother that. Nobody really believes that. And if my mother were to find out that the girl down the street bought her mother a card saying that her mother was the, the greatest mother in the world. She wasn't going to go down and fight, fight for the right to be called the greatest mother in the world, because we all right. realize that that's a, an expression of uh, we're overdoing it, but in a, in a in a kind of a nice way. And my mother didn't have bombs and, and guns anyway, you know, all that. So it's it's not wrong to uh, say good things about our country or even feel good things about our country, because what what's nice about comparing family with country is that there's something about my family that I have a special relationship to. My mother, mm. my father. Uh, you go to college, I mean, you know, you live in the part of the country where the joke is that uh, the definition of an atheist in Western Michigan is somebody who doesn't care who wins the Hope Calvin game, you know. <laughs> and uh, you know, so if you if you kind of hope you're gonna have a special affection for it because it's this it's your school, you know? right? Right. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that unless people start uh, claiming that it's a character defect to cheer for Calvin College at a hope Calvin, right. you know? Right. So these are there's, there's so much of this is tied in with who I am and where God has placed me. But then the marvelous thing is that God has told us in the scripture how we are to handle the fact that of, of where we are and where God has placed us. And a wonderful example of this is in Jeremiah 27 where the people of Israel have been put in this pagan city They'd lived for uh, you know years in uh, Jerusalem, where they had their godly, godly laws. They had their own temple. They had godly leaders, and even when they weren't very godly, they at least knew how to think about godly things. They were aware of God. All of a sudden, they're in this pagan, wicked city of Babylon, and they're crying out. How do we sing the Lord's song in this strange land? We don't even know where to go to worship, you know, in, in the land. And then Jeremiah comes to them and he gives them, this is a word from the Lord and it's some new stuff right, about, about living in Babylon as the people of God. First of all, plant gardens and eat the produce. He's saying, settle in. Uh, Raise your children there and have children and raise them there and marry them off to each other and uh, to you know, men and women. 
and let them have children, multiply in the land, multiply in the land. He said, you know? mm. But then this amazing verse, but seek the welfare of the city in which I have placed you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf and seek the, the welfare of the city, the, the shalom of the city. And uh, because in its shalom, you will find your shalom. You're saying these pagan people that you're living among, you got to care about them. You, you've got to seek their welfare, their well-being. You've got to do things to help them to flourish. And so God says, you know, seek the welfare of not only Zealand, but seek the welfare of Detroit. Right. Seek the welfare of Harlem, of the Barrios, you know, uh, and pray to the Lord on behalf of those there. And uh, that's so important that uh, we are to uh, reach, it isn't just the Christian community, we're to reach beyond the Christian community that in no way negates the call to evangelism and witnessing to who Christ is. But even when you aren't successful in evangelizing someone, doing gestures and working for policies and laws that help them to flourish more uh, is pleasing to God. And that's something that we need a lot more teaching on. It's so good to hear because there's just been so much rhetoric on both extremes. You'll hear some people on one end of the spectrum say, well, if my candidate doesn't win, I'm, I'm moving to Canada or I'm moving to Europe. And then you'll have other people say, well, if my state doesn't vote these policies, I'm moving across state lines or worse yet, I'm, I'm encouraging my state to secede from the union. And, and you know, a, a couple of decades ago, that would have sounded absurd. And the fact that there, there are ballots or initiatives where people are actually, you know, considering dividing states just, it just seems absolutely absurd to me and is, is totally counter to the the precept, the principle that you've just explained, that our our obligation, our, our calling is to incarnate the gospel in such a way that, that we seek good, want good, and create good uh, wh wherever we are, because that's honoring to God, and that's reflective of, of, of his good and perfect character. Yeah. So well, you, there, should I, a book. you should write a book on this. <laughs> I'm going to finish reading yours first, and then, then we'll figure out what we want to do. Uh, Dr. Mao, there was something that, that, that definitely caught my attention and made me ask some questions. I was driving my children to and from school, and there was a particular house in downtown Zealand, not too far away from where we're recording right now. And heading up to one particular election, they had, they had a lot of paraphernalia for their party and their candidate, and the, the lawn was just strewn with as many American flags as they could, they could swing in there. Well, unfortunately for those residents, the election did not go their way. And I was surprised a week later to see all the flags gone and all the signs gone, except for one yard sign that said, Jesus is Lord over Ottawa County. And for those of you who aren't local, the, yeah. Ottawa yeah. County is the, is the one that's adjacent to Kent County where Grand Rapids is, is. And I found it very fascinating or intriguing. And I was trying not to be you know, judgmental in my flesh to be able to say, well, Jesus was always Lord over Ottawa County. <laughs> why, why did we pick the week after the election to remind ourselves and our neighbors that that was in fact right. the case? Right. So, so why is it that we, that we tend to punt on the sovereignty of God, uh, his commitment to our counties and our neighborhoods in elections and, and only, only re-anchor ourselves in that sentiment when, when things maybe didn't go our way? Right. Yeah. And that's a very important question. And I, I think here, we need to start talking about the role of churches. You know, what, what, what technically we call catechesis, the teaching ministry of the church, which is more than 
teaching the questions and answers, say, of the Heidelberg Catechism. Yeah, there's a tendency to begin thinking about these things in a political environment. Yeah. Right. And uh, a pastor, I, uh, during a previous election uh, campaign time, a pastor, and I, I mean, I'll just say what he said. He said he stood up in the Q&A after I was talking about some of these things. And he said, Dr. Mao, I have never preached a political sermon in my life. And I hope I'll never have to preach a political sermon again. But I just cannot let this one go by without speaking from the pulpit against Trump. And he said, uh, do you have any advice for me of how to, how to bring that off? And I said, well, first of all, I want to congratulate you. You see yourself as doing something brave and courageous. But I want to say, if you've never preached on anything to do with politics before this, and you don't plan to do it after this, um, I think you're wasting your time. That's a good word. You're just going to say something. You're going to turn a lot of people off. And you may feel good about it. You may go home to your 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 parsonage or your your housing sit in your study and really feel good about yourself but you really haven't done the right kind of work and i'm not even sure pulpits are the places to do this but you know we just i i, I think we need to do a lot more and i'm, I'm not sure and i say if, if i were to ever preach a political sermon then i have i wouldn't do it going up to an election Right. I wait till about a month after the election. People are only going to be thinking, I wonder who he's going to vote for. Right. And in your case, they'll know, you know. Right. Uh, but uh, election campaigns are not the best time. They're not the best teaching time. Right. And what we need are the safe places, places where we're not worked up over what we heard on Fox News yesterday or what we saw on CNN. We, we, need to, we need to find places where people can sit down and look each other in the eye without uh, saying, well, you're a, a Trump voter or you're a Biden voter. Can we talk together yeah. about how we can be more obedient to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And uh, probably the best time to put those signs on our lawns are kind of halfway between elections, you know, and also to make it a part of a larger thing, because we also need to be thinking about what it means to sell insurance in obedience to Christ, you know? Sure. What it means to be a, a Tigers fan in obedience to Christ, you know? What it means to be a, a faithful husband or a faithful wife in obedience to, to Christ. Uh, and uh, uh, we, need, we need to do a lot better at thinking about the broader issues, because when we just sort of extract politics and then make that the issue of whether you're obedient or disobedient to Christ, uh, we're really missing out on, on the patterns of the Christian life. And I think if I wanted a group of people to talk about political obedience, I'd want to start with how do you live your life in obedience to Christ? How do you make decisions about stewardship how do you make decisions about you know the internet and, and questions like that uh so that it isn't just this is the big issue who you vote for you know yeah 
Dr. Mao, one of the greatest gifts I, I learned at Fuller in the, in the, in the missiology track is somebody once said, uh, mission occurs every time the gospel crosses a boundary. And a few years ago, you wrote a book about engaging uh, members of the community, the Latter-day Saints. And what, what, what did you learn about engaging the other? Because there, there were a lot of evangelicals who thought that you should have just gone with a scorched earth approach and taught all of these, you know, alleged heretics, why, why, why they were wrong and expose them as the charlatans that they are and, 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 and walk away from the smoldering wreckage with your fists raised in the air. And that's, that's not the approach that you took. Right. No, and, and there's a backstory that I won't go into, but there's some things have been happening that open up the possibility that a group of evangelical scholars could get together with a group of Muslim, of uh, Muslim, uh, Mormon, LDS scholars, just to talk about what we believe. Uh, my, my dear friend uh, who I co-directed, uh, we've been doing this for 20 years, but a, a Brigham Young University dean, uh, Robert Miller, uh, said to me, you know, we Mormons have been out of touch with historic Christianity from the beginning hmm. because we condemned historic Christianity and you condemned us. And so we shouted at each other. But, you know, we're not even sure that we're using the right theological terms when we say we don't believe in the Trinity, you know? Right. That I say I don't believe in the Trinity, but I, I talk about the about the the three members of the Godhead, you know. Right. And so he said, uh, "Is there some way we can get together and just kind of uh, try out some things, you know, when we say we don't believe in the Trinity, or when we talk about uh, the the redemptive work of Christ?" Uh, can we uh, can we just get together and talk? And uh, and so we got together and we said uh, there were eight 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 of us on each side. And it was kind of a tense moment when we the first time we've ever met on campus of Brigham Young University. But you know we we decided right at the beginning we're not going to get into who wrote the Book of Mormon because that's been played over and over again, and we're not going to get into uh, condemning each other right from the outset. But we're going to start with a question that we both take seriously. How does a human being get right with God? Mm. And before that, what's wrong with us that we have to get right with God? And starting with that agenda, uh, we, we discovered some wonderful things that, that, that our, our Mormon friends said, look, we're sinners. Yeah. And we really need to get right with God. That's great. And we say to them, but but don't you believe that uh, you can get right with God by good works? They say, oh, no, no. Our good works are our response to the grace that God has given us that we did not deserve. You know? mm -hmm. And that, that kind of blew a lot of stereotypes right there. You know? We once yeah. got together... Uh, about 100 evangelical students and 100 Brigham Young students at a conference where both evangelical and Mormon theologians spoke to them. And one of my students from Fuller uh, told me that in the small group discussion he was in, where they had equal numbers of, of Mormon and evangelical students, uh, there, were, there had been one uh, professor from Brigham Young, a, a marvelous woman scholar who 
was uh, teaching scripture, uh, the Old New Testament and Book of Mormon at Brigham Young. And she had said in her speech, I am not saved by my good works. I'm saved by the atoning work of Jesus Christ, who has done for me what I could never have done for myself. And my good works are what I offer to God in response to the grace of God that has come into my life. And he said, a Wheaton student in my small group turned to a Mormon Brigham Young student and said, I didn't know you guys believed that. And the Mormon student said, I didn't know that either, but it sure sounds right to me, you know? And, and so those are the kinds of things that uh, that we, we were able to discover. And my, my friend Bob Millen wrote a book so, uh, called uh, about 15 years ago, Whatever Happened to the Cross in Mormonism? And he said, you know, we don't display crosses. He said, I once asked my, my, my dad, why don't we use crosses? What's wrong with that? And he said, yeah, the Catholics do that. You know? and, and he said, because we had gone through a whole century of wanting to emphasize how we differ from Catholics, right? how we differ from evangelicals. But when we set that aside and we actually think about it, the cross of Jesus Christ is our only hope. And there's a wonderful address. You know, every, every year there's an annual conference of Mormon, Mormons, uh, 16 million Mormons around the world right now. There are more Mormons outside of the United States than inside. And the Mormon uh, uh, apostles take their turns speaking. And there's one, Jeffrey Holland, who's a dear friend of mine. And he gave a talk about Jesus on the cross. And he said, there was no one who, were with, who, who was with him. And he suffered and bled and died. And he said, without his being alone on the cross, our salvation would not be accomplished then. Wow. So right around that time, I, I saw that there was one of the, you know, what I call counter-cult people giving a talk on uh, what's wrong with Mormonism. So I went to hear him. There was a big crowd there, uh, sponsored by a, a mega church. And uh, he said there, Mormons hate the cross. They hate the cross. So I went up to him afterward, and I said, uh, yeah, thank you. I, was, I learned some things from you tonight. And unfortunately, I told them who I was and where I was from, uh, which I shouldn't have done. But I said, you know, on that thing, I wish you would read my friend Bob Millett's book on whatever happens to the cross in Mormonism, because he he's a Mormon. And there are Mormon apostles that I've heard who love the cross of Christ. And this guy lashed out at me. And he said, oh, you intellectuals, you always got to make everything complicated. He said, we don't have time for all that nice stuff. He said, we're in a battle for the truth, and we've got to win. You know? And it occurred to me, I wish I could have talked to him more, but that in a battle for the truth, you tell lies. You know? There's something wrong with that. Now, I want to say, I disagree with Mormonism on a lot of things. And we have really good discussions about that. But I've got to say, a lot of the things that I thought I disagreed with, I don't. 
and that I am convinced that uh, that there are Mormon people that I know who have a confused theology, but who really love the Lord Jesus. And I want to convince there are a lot of my evangelicals who have a confused theology at this point. And what we need to do is keep talking. Yeah. And not avoid each other. And uh, that's so important. Yeah. That's so good. Dr. Brown, one last question. I, I was reading some of Paul's epistles recently, and, and one, one of the themes that kept popping up to me is when he kept saying, well, I'm going to stay in this town because a door for effective work has opened for me. It's a phrase that he uses a couple different times. In, in these contentious times, how, how do followers of Jesus who are committed to the gospel and committed to the mission of the kingdom, how, what's the best way for us to keep our eyes peeled and our hearts opened uh, to doors that God is opening for dialogue and, and mission and, and growth? Thank you. Yeah, you know, I got a nice thing. Uh, I once talked about that with uh, Rick Warren, and he, he made an interesting point. He said, you know, in... Uh, in one of the accounts of Jesus sending out the 70, he says, you go into a village, and I had never noticed this before, and see if you can find the man of, pe the man of peace. Yeah. And if you can find him, stay. Yeah. But if you can't find him, shake the dust off your feet, go on, you know. And I, I think I found that in Robert Millet, for example, you know. Hey, can we talk? You know, I mean, what a wonderful thing. And so I think that, uh, and, and he was drawing, but Rick Warren was drawing an analogy to Kay's work with the AIDS in Africa, mm -hmm. and that they'd go into a, a, a village, a remote village, a remote for the, us, but not for those people. But, uh, and they would, first of all, go to the witch doctor or the shaman. And if he was willing to talk to them about health care, they would stay. But if he was hostile, they'd move on, you know? Wow. And I think we need to discern. We need to discern. And we need that, need that, seek of, that, that gift of discernment. And, and sometimes it's pretty easy to find, you know? Yeah. Because it's the person who says, can we talk? And they're not trying to propagandize us. So when Bob Millett said, you know, we want to try out stuff on you people because we don't always use the right language and we need to be corrected in that. Yeah. And that's a good place, a good place to start. But, uh, and, and I want to say we need to seek out. I mean, not just hope we happen to come across, you know. Right. So <laughs> interesting, you know, you know, all the, cult stuff among evangelicals, Walter Martin, you know, had these cults, uh, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, and Seventh-day Adventists, and he finally decided that Seventh-day Adventists were confused evangelicals, you know. But, okay. But since I've been doing this, I was actually contacted by a, a leader, of, a, a Christian Science leader, and by a Jehovah's Witness leader. Uh, you've done it with the Mormons, would you do it with us? But I sensed that they were looking for uh, something to make them look good. Okay. And not really wanting to talk about the issues. Yeah, know? so it wasn't a true person of peace. No, and he was not the man of peace. No, that's right. That person of okay. peace. 
Yeah. Well, Dr. Mao, you've given me a lot to think about and chew on. And again, if you're uh, listening and you're curious more about these types of conversations, the book is called How to Be a Patriotic Christian, Love of Country as Love of Neighbor by Richard Mao, published by InterVarsity Press. Dr. Mao, thanks again for your time. I appreciate your insight and, and just the, the grace of you giving your time and your energy to us today. Well, thank you. And God bless you. I, I'm so pleased you're doing what you're doing and where you are doing it, because uh, I miss going to Hope Calvin games, <laughs> but hey, well, many blessings. Yeah. Thank you so much. And God's blessings to you as well. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.